0: Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to continue our study in 2 Thessalonians. If you want to open up your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to do a long stretch or a little bit longer stretch today. We're going to do verses 1 through 12. So again, that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Listen, if you don't have a Bible on you, you don't own one, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're unfamiliar with how to use the Bible, as we're making our way today, you can find a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know how to locate the book of 2 Thessalonians. And then as we're going through, just know that the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Let me read this passage for us, invite you to read along, and then we'll go back to the Lord once more in prayer. Paul writes, It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemed uh, to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure instead in unrighteousness. Would you pray with me? God, we come into this passage that in many ways is difficult for us to access. It's difficult for us to to see, to readily apply, to see how in the world it intersects our lives here in the 21st century. But God, it is all the more urgent for us to hear, for us to apply, for us to give careful and considerable thought to. God, this morning as we come into this place to worship you, we do so with our hearts in many different places. Some of us ready to hear from you, ready to submit to you, delighting this morning in worshiping you. Others this morning, we've come into this place, we are broken, we are weary, we're just not sure how much we have left to give. You delight in meeting both of those. You delight in the questions of the skeptic, you delight in the worship of the adorer. And so God, I pray this morning that you would meet both of them in the power of your spirit. God, I pray that as the skeptic, as the hurting come into this place, that they would receive answers, that they would be ministered to by the power of your spirit. God, that we would worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. God, we want to come before you and we want to pray for the other churches of our community. Hearing stories of woe and sadness and transition and sickness. God, we want to pray for other brothers and sisters in other churches. That they might be healthy. That they might be vibrant. That even in the midst of these trials and these difficulties, that you would show yourself faithful. Christ, who is the head of the church, faithful. The spirit who gives life to the body, faithful. You who receive all worship and adoration of the church, faithful. That's what we want this morning. We want our partners across this city to have an opportunity to witness your faithfulness. God, I pray for myself that as, we communi- as I communicate this text, as we think on these things, that you would help my thoughts to be clear my words to be sure, my heart to be fixed, steadfast on you in all things. God, we ask that you would be blessed, that you would be glorified, that your name would be magnified, that we would count you as holy in all things, even in this time that we are together. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to think back for a moment just a few years ago, but it's pre-COVID, so it almost feels like a lifetime ago. So January the 13th, 2018, you're on the island of Hawaii, and you get a message on your phone that's somewhat shocking. And the message you get on your phone, the message you see scroll across the TV, the message you hear roll across the radio says, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter And then what follows it is incredibly shocking. This is not a drill. So all the children of the 60s are looking for a desk to cower underneath, right? Played across the TV, it says the U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. If you are indoors, kiss your wife. No, it doesn't say that. If you are indoors, stay indoors. If you are outdoors, seek immediate shelter in a building. Remain indoors, away from all windows that are going to be blown to smithereens. If you are driving, pull safely to the side of the road and seek shelter in a building or lay on the floor. Presumably, you're driving indoors. Uh, We will announce when this threat is ended, this is not a drill. Take immediate action measures. So this is the message they get. On January the 13th, 2018, and for 38 minutes and 13 seconds, they lived in this reality. For 38 minutes and 13 seconds, they lived in the reality that this is not a drill. Life is about to be forever altered. Everything's about to change. For 38 minutes and 13 seconds, everything that they knew and loved was coming to an end. All because of an error. Obviously, it was meant to go out. It was meant to say, this is just a test of the emergency broadcast system, as we're so incredibly used to hearing. But it didn't. For 38 minutes and 13 seconds, they lived in the reality of appropriating this false information. False information that sent terror into their hearts. False information that made them fear for their very lives. Now, we would go on to see the head of the emergency administration in Hawaii step down. The governor would offer a formal apology. And all these things to address what was just a mistake, what was just an accident, the wrong keystroke that somebody entered. Now, this church here in Thessalonica, they have received a message that they presume to be from Paul. And this message is effectively communicating to them, you've missed it. The day of the Lord has already happened. Jesus has already come back. And, and this is just kind of what it is going on here and forward. And so they're scratching their heads. They're thinking, okay, listen, if we missed it, if Jesus has already come back, and this is really the best there is, and this is really as good as it's ever going to get, then we feel like we've been lied to. We feel like we've been deceived. We feel like maybe there was a hole somewhere in this. And so what Paul has to do is he has to write to them and address them and correct this misunderstanding. Because they're basing their present on a false view of the future. They're basing their present, how they discern what God is doing, how they determine what they're going to do, on a false view of the future. And so what Paul wants us to see from this is the way we react in the present is based upon what God's word says of the future. Amen? Now look at what he says to them. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord and, and our being gathered, this thing I wrote to you in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to be gathered with him in the sky. The dead in Christ will rise first. We're going to meet him there. We ask you, brothers, look what he says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. In essence, don't lose your business. Calm down. Because what they're doing is, is they've received this message, they receive received this information, and what has happened to them is collectively they've become little chicken littles, and they're running around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And they're like, what are you talking about? The sky is falling. How do you know the sky is falling? Jesus has already come back. The day of the Lord has already happened. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. I mean, this is kind of what they're captivated and caught up in. It's this mass hysteria that's infecting the church that's changing the way that they seek to live faithfully. So he says, calm down. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. And he runs through this list of things that should not shake, things that should not affect them mightily. He says, don't let it be by a spirit. Don't let it be by a, a spoken word, a sermon. And don't let it be from a letter seeking to be from us, from me, Timothy and Sylvanus, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So what's he asking them to do? He's asking them to remember what they knew before and to apply what they knew before to this new information that has been introduced to them. Don't be quickly shaken. Don't be alarmed. Calm down. The Lord is still faithful. So what we're going to see as we move through this is that Paul is going to begin to address a principal character referred to as the man of lawlessness. Now, even as we get into this, if you uh, grew up in church in the 1980s, you probably heard, I mean, just a host of sermons on the coming of the Lord and, and Rush of the Bear and how all these things are going to work. And so, you're, you know, you've got your John Hagee collection set at home. And so this is kind of like mainstay for you. You have this understanding of what it is to enter into these kind of revelation-y series things. And it feels a little bit science fiction-y. It feels a little bit science fiction-y to those of us who weren't raised into this fear. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is one of two things, or depending on kind of which camp you're in, which camp you're in. So if this was you, like this was the mainstay for you, so you go to church in the morning and in the afternoon you learn how to keep water stable on the shelves for a long time and how to keep cans from going bad, Put, put pause on that push pause on that, okay? Let's stay in this passage. Let's see what Paul has for us. And if, on the other hand, you hear these things, you read the Revelation, maybe you read the Left Behind series, and it it feels a little bit like Christian science fiction to you, Let's, let's just put pause on that. LaHaye doesn't have the final word, okay? Let's see what Paul has to say instead. So look at how he addresses this man of lawlessness. He says, let no one deceive you For that day will not come. What day? The day of the Lord. It's not going to come until a few things happen first. Everybody say, "Woo! we didn't miss it. They thought they did too, so it's okay. He says, uh, that day won't happen until these things happen first unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and he calls him the son of destruction, essentially this one who is raised up so that God can destroy him, the son of destruction. So he says there's a a rebellion that's gonna come first. Now Jesus spoke to this rebellion back in Matthew in chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, really 11 and following, but we're just gonna look at these two. He says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So what's Paul saying there? Paul is saying that before this man of lawlessness shows up, before this day of the Lord happens, a lot of people who you presume to be Christian are going to fall away from the faith. Now, this is devastating. This is a devastating thought for us. Because if we are alive in those days, if you are a pew sitter in those days, if you are captivated in church in those days, what you're going to observe is on the main stage, all across the world, people are going to bail on Christianity. Now, not just kind of culturally, as we're already seeing, but people who you presume to be followers and believers of Jesus Christ, they're going to bail. They're gone. And it's going to happen globally to the degree that Paul refers to it as a rebellion. He says you're going to have this rebellion. It's going to happen. It's going to come first. And then the man of lawlessness, this one that Satan is always rising up, always preparing, he is going to take center state. This is what he's going to be like. Look at the hubris of him. Look at this exalted sense of pride in verse 4. This man of lawlessness. It says he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So this person, this magnetic personality is going to raise himself up against everything that anybody worships. And so if if Any different uh, branch of Christianity, any different cult, any different major religion across the world, this guy's going to set himself up as being supreme and above all these things. So Islam, he's supreme and above. Hinduism, he's supreme and above. Taoism, he's supreme and above. Individualism, he's supreme and above. Like, you can't be your own god because this guy's your god better. And so this guy's going to set himself up being above all and the all. And listen to what he says there what's he going to do he's going to go in he's going to take his seat at the temple of god proclaiming himself to be god now if we're just going to kind of look at problems that that situate around this or things that we say that have to happen yet depending on your stream of eschatology so kind of how you get down with your coffee uh, and how you think about the end times one of the things you'd say was well the temple has to be rebuilt He's going to sit down in a temple the temple has to be rebuilt that's if you take a literalist understanding to this that's if you take a literalist understanding to what he is saying there now there are those and i'm just going to kind of expand the knowledge that you can have and so if you don't want to have your knowledge expanded right now do this number okay and so historically if we're going to talk about what's happened here this kind of thing has happened twice not this exact thing but this kind of thing So in B.C. 167, so 2nd century B.C., Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, because he said, look at me, I'm Epiphanes. Nobody? Okay. (laughs) So he raised himself up to be God. He raised himself up to be one that people would worship. So he goes into the temple, he walks up to the altar, and he takes a pig, and he sacrifices that pig as an offering to Zeus. And so you say, ooh, that's pretty close. That's pretty close. Now, there are a number of other things that have to happen, so that's not, that's also not the day of the Lord. We haven't seen this rebellion, we haven't seen the coming of Christ yet. In AD 70, AD 70, the Romans come in, they destroy the temple, before they destroy the temple, they go in and they set up different altars, they set up different relics, different objects of worship to a God other than Yahweh God. The enemy, Satan, is always seeking to bring about the man of lawlessness, in every generation, in every group of people, he's always seeking to raise up the man of lawlessness. I lived in the UK in the 1980s, and for whatever reason, I think it's the big nose and ears, Prince Charles was described as being the man of lawlessness. I think his mom started that rumor. But what we see in this is that over the course of time, if you are to do a study repeatedly, we see people say that he is the man of lawlessness. It's Antiochus Fourth. it's Nero, it's... it's Caligula, it's this person, it's Prince Charles, it's Obama, whoever. Within every epoch of time, we always find that the enemy is raising up somebody, and what we'll find is a group of Christians trying to figure out who he is or who she is. What's important is to find what he will do. This person is going to declare themselves as God and call men and women to worship them as such. Now, what he describes here isn't necessarily in a physical location. The important thing is, in setting himself up in the temple, he is declaring himself to be greater than Yahweh God, greater than the Creator God. He's saying, you should give to me all worship. You should give to me all adoration. I am God. Now, Paul has to interrupt that immediately And so he begins to ask them to recall things that he communicated to them, even back to when he was there with them a couple of years before. So he says, do you not remember what I said to you when I was with you and I told you these things? Recall what you've heard before. Recall what you've heard before. So he wants them to see this man of lawlessness in his restraint. He says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, this is one of these places where Scripture gets to be a little bit frustrating to us because we don't actually know what is restraining the man of lawlessness. But Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, remember what I told you? And then he moves right next to it. He says, you know what's restraining him, but he doesn't go on to tell us exactly what it is. And so when you get into this next sentence, this next phrase, know that there are like six different ideas. Of what this could possibly be. And we're not going to spend all of our time going over the six. A great Google search and a book and a cup of coffee will take you there. We're going to look at two of them. One of the thoughts that it could be. One of the thoughts of what it could be. Is really a compound idea. So when he gets into verse 6. He says you know what is restraining him. It's the idea that it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving and restraining this lawless one. But how is the Holy Spirit doing it? He is doing it, verse 7, according to the agency of an angel. He's employing the use of an angel to do these things. Look at how 7 starts. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We'll come back to that. Only he who now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way. So even right now, in the midst of these things, and I think we can get there looking at Daniel 10, Daniel 12, and Revelation 12, and we're not going to go there. But God employs angels for the purpose of restraining hellish plots. God employs angels for the purpose of restraining the hand of Satan. We see even in the book of Jude where Michael and, and, another, uh, and a demon are warring over the body of Moses. So frequently we see how God is using angels to accomplish his ends. And so it's my belief, and you can disagree, that God is currently using, employing angels to restrain, to hold back this man of lawlessness. Now at some point, what he's going to do is step out of the way and let this man of lawlessness loose, And then he's going to declare himself God, and then he's going to call men and women to come and worship him. But what has he told us prior to any of these things? He says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we see it. We see the mystery of lawlessness in the defeat of of an amendment in the state of Kansas. The state had a real chance to come out and say, we will not perform abortions in our state. And the mystery of lawlessness swept up people. We see the mystery of lawlessness anytime someone takes the life of an innocent. We see the mystery of lawlessness revealed in hate. We see the mystery of lawlessness revealed in anger. We see the mystery of lawlessness come in in the perversion of our society. It's running rampant. The mystery of lawlessness is not something we're unfamiliar with. We can walk the halls of our schools. We can walk the halls of our places of employment. We can watch the news for 30 seconds on a Monday morning. The mystery of lawlessness is not so much of a mystery at all. And even as bad as it is, God is restraining it. I want you to think about that for a second. A gunman comes into a school in Uvalde shoots teachers and students. The mystery of lawlessness is revealed and God is restraining the man of lawlessness. The government of China sends men and women to internment camps, takes minority people groups and ships them off and brainwashes, brainwashes them, tears down churches, oppresses people. The mystery of lawlessness is revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is revealed. But still God restrains. So we're caught in the middle of this, of seeing things go in a direction that we're not comfortable with, a direction that we oppose, but still holding in tension, this form of cognitive dissonance, holding both things true at the same time, that God is restraining this man of lawlessness. But still the mystery of lawlessness, as it were. He says, when this angel pulls back his hand and he lets loose the lawless. The lawless one will be revealed. But listen, listen to his end. There is no cataclysmic fight. There's no need to bring George Lucas in to give us some hokey lines, but some great cinematography. What he says in the middle of these things is when this lawless one is revealed, the Son of Man, Jesus, will show up, and he will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Not just kill him. He says he will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this is the picture Jesus shows us. The man of lawlessness, he is out. He's calling people to worship him. He is leading the world in the directions of chaos. And people are loving it. They think it's the greatest thing they've ever heard and experienced. And, and, and he is just thinking, I'm the be-all. I'm the end-all. Things are so great. Things are so wonderful. Even my mother-in-law loves me. And even in the middle of these things, while he's working his track, while he's at his game, Jesus just shows up. And Jesus' is appearing strikes, heart, tr- strikes fear into the heart of the lawless man. And when Jesus utters a single word, he is laid low, even to the point where there's nothing left of him. This is the power of our God who at once restrains and is coming to kill. And you say, how did this lawless one, like, where does he get his power? Where does he get his might? Where does he get his influence? Is there like a training school for lawless ones? No, look what he says here. He says, this coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, all false signs, and all wonders, And with all wicked deception for all those who are perishing. So what we see in this person who is this lawless one, he's out there and he's not doing illusions. He's not doing tricks. He's not pulling a rabbit out of a hat. He is actually doing things that are real and legit. Now, when else have we seen that? We see that in Jesus when he shows up in the Gospels. Jesus is out there. He's casting out demons. Jesus is out there, he's raising the dead. Jesus is out there, he is healing the sick. Jesus is walking on water, y'all. Jesus is doing amazing signs, miracles, wonders, and powers. But he's doing all these things through the power of God. Now what God allows to happen is one who comes who resembles Jesus. Is our enemy not great? Is he not so crafty? Not very original, but he's very crafty. Right So he's reading through the gospels, he's like, "What did Jesus do this? "Oh, that was nice. Oh, a little walking on water, a little "Oh, oh, that's good." Okay, I'm going to give him some power. I'm going to give him some signs. I'm going to give him some miracles. And people are going to go nuts for it. Listen. You watch uh, I th- you can get this on TV and you get it on a bunch of different channels. Watch a faith healer. Watch a peddler of a false gospel. Entice people to believe something that's not true Tell the sick they can be healed if they send in fifty dollars They'll get a a loincloth that he used to wipe the sweat off of his chest and he drops some olive oil on In a culture and society and thousands of people globally are drawn to it. They're taken into it How much more will be the attractiveness of one fully outfitted and equipped with all the power of hell to draw, to attract, and to marvel and to employ all wicked deception. Listen to the sadness of this. Paul writes, for those who are perishing. See, the reality of this is that all those who come to the lawless one will come expecting life and receive only death. Because life only comes through Christ and death through all others. And he says this is what he's going to draw them with, is this allure of life. But what they are going to receive is death. And they receive death, the second half of verse 10, for this reason, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Do you hear the offer there? Do you hear what's on offer? On the one hand, we see magnetism, we see power. We see incredible things, this fantastic display of awesomeness. But it only leads to death. It only leads to disappointment. And its end is perishing. And on the other hand, this invitation, this open-handed invitation, this entreaty by God through Jesus compelling us through the power of His Holy Spirit is come to the truth. Come to the truth. To love the truth and be saved. The idea of perishing comes because they have refused to love the truth. They have rejected the truth. And in so rejecting the truth, they have refused to be saved. So here we are in this situation. We've got those who have refused the truth. They have refused to love the truth and to be saved. To submit themselves to Jesus. Then we have this group that has fully submitted themselves to Jesus. And what God says happens to those, what he does for those who refuse to love the truth and be saved, is he gives them over to a strong delusion. In some sense, he gives them over to themselves. He allows them to imbibe, to drink deeply from that which is false. And look what he says, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did what? Who did not believe the truth but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. They were there all the time marveling. They were there all the time enjoying. They were there all the time engaging in unrighteousness. And so their end is condemnation. So how do we reconcile, how do we understand God's love with the coming condemnation of all those? even just following probably the most oft-quoted Bible verse out of John three sixteen, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. We read this in 17 and 18. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the role of Jesus in his coming was not to bring condemnation, but that men and women might be saved from condemnation and brought into light. Look what he goes on to say. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, it's an invitation. It's an offer. God is even now restraining the man of lawlessness, employing his patience and drawing us by the power of his grace, seeking to woo and win our hearts, asking us if we will love the truth, and in loving the truth, so be saved. Now listen, if you're here in this place and you are a Christian, the word that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica is in a very real sense the same word he gives to us. Do not be shaken or alarmed. The bottom drops out of the stock market. Do not be shaken or alarmed. For sure, buy some gold. Put your, put your cash in a trash can, bury it in the backyard, but don't tell the IRS where you put it. Listen. <laughs> the word that he gives to us is do not be shaken depending on your view of eschatology, the church is either going to be taken out before these things get bad or you're going to go through that. And that's, that's kind of for you to decide and God to enact. But do not be shaken. Our culture and the mystery of lawlessness is currently being revealed. It's currently being rolled out. And this means that from our vantage point, we see things that are terrible. We see things that are awful. Do not be shaken. Your primary obligation in this time while God is restraining this man of lawlessness is to seek to be faithful and to call others to faithfulness. To live out the gospel and call others to it. How will they respond if they don't hear? Your circle, your sphere of influence, the people that you come into contact with are different likely than the people I come into contact with. Then Robert comes into contact with, that Joel comes into contact with, that Kelsey comes into contact with, that Cleve and Hillary come into contact with. How are you leveraging your sphere of influence and calling those people to respond to the love on offer? And so be saved. Let us not be shaken, let us be faithful. Y'all, let us trust in Jesus for our future. As a kid, I was terrified to read anything to do with, uh, I probably at that time called it the revelations. Anything to do with uh, John's revelation, anything to do with end times, it all reminded me of boys' choirs, and it was all very, very scary. And so any thought in my mind that came to it sounded like this. That's the knife. But all these things are written to give us hope. And we miss out on the hope that we can enjoy. We miss out on this reception of joy and delight in our God when we don't give ourselves to the careful study of His Word. I May mean, let's trust and entrust. Let's trust God and entrust our future to God. Amen. Now listen, if you're not if you're here in this place or within this hearing and you don't know Jesus, my primary desire And the heart of this church is that you would come to know him. That you would submit yourself to him. The Bible tells us that you are currently now receiving the condemnation of God because you have not received salvation at the hand of his son. That is not God's desire. That is not his delight for you. He wants you to come to know him. He wants you to be saved by him. And he wants to radically transform your life. And we would love a chance to pray with you and have a longer conversation with you about what that looks like. But it simply starts as this. Would you save me? A prayer that starts in your heart and comes out of your mouth to the Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we ask for God's blessing? God, we thank you for your goodness. How thankful that I don't have to worry about my future That I don't have to worry about how things are going to work out on the world stage. You have it firmly in hand. You're currently restraining the action of this man of lawlessness. And his end is assured. It is coming. The word of Jesus. So God, I pray that you would help us to live lives in confidence And God, I pray that you would be moving mightily in the hearts of any in this place and in this hearing. They don't know you. Maybe even today, they don't care to know you. But God, I pray that you would win them through your love. That you would call them to yourself by the blood of your son and you would hold them fast by the equipping of your spirit. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.